Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's uh, give some love to our uh, Ventura and Carpinteria campuses that are joining us this morning. And turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 4 through 6 today. While you're turning there, you uh, may remember uh, last week we were in the first three verses of chapter 4 where Paul exhorted us to persevere in the unity that we have in Christ Jesus. What he's going to be telling us now in verses 4 and 5 and 6 is not so much the exhortation to preserve unity, but what are we unifying around? What exactly brings us together? He's going to answer that as we read, starting in verse 4. Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for what you said concerning your word through the prophet Isaiah that So your word that goes forth from your mouth, it will not return to you empty. It will accomplish what you purpose. It will do what you set it out to do. And so we as a church, Lord, as a a local gathering in three different locations, we want to subject ourselves to the authority of your word. We pray that what Jeremiah says of your word would be true, that it is like a hammer that shatters the rock. Perhaps we've come into this building today with rocks and idols and entanglements, sins and addictions and distractions. We pray that those things would be crumbling in face of the knowledge of Jesus Christ as we discover you in your word. We pray that as a church we'd be able to gather around the table and feast upon the bread of life. We pray that as we do it, by faith, Lord, that you would transform us, God. That this would be, please, save us from another lecture today. Save us from just going to school. We want to encounter the Most High God. And thank you, Lord, that we do not cause your word to come alive to us. Your word is living and active. We ask that your word would cause our hearts to come alive to it. So revive our hearts, Lord, as we look into your scriptures we become more like this Jesus that we so love and adore. In Jesus' name, amen. Unified around what? I've noticed over the years that our culture has a tense, I guess you could call it a love-hate relationship with the concept of unity. We do love the concept of unity, but we, we would prefer to have it with all of the challenges that usually accompany such a word. We love this sense of harmony and unity and community. We just want it without all the drama, we want it without the confrontation, and we'd love it without the absolutes and the truth that seem to go along with it. I've noticed this trajectory in my own life starting from the 80s as I've been plotting the change in culture in regards to unity by watching bumper stickers change for the past 20 years. 
specifically Christian bumper stickers. It all started with the one that you're aware of, the Christian fish, right? And as I was a kid, looking at cars driving with this Christian fish, and some of them would say a a few uh, Roman numerals or a few letters in it. I think it was uh, Icathus or something to that nature. I don't know what it means. Nobody does. Some people do, but it's on our cars. And we drive uh, around with this Icathus fish. And I don't think... Uh, Many people, many Christians know what the symbolism was behind the fish, but I don't think very many do because I watched that fish change, evolve, if you will, into a family of fishes. So it wasn't just a fish. It was a daddy fish and a mother fish and three children fishes uh, right next to the soccer mom bumper sticker, the soccer dad on their SUV. And I I don't even think some of us knew why we had this sticker on on our car. After a few years, the secular humanists of my hometown would fight back by doing what? Well, by creating the Darwin fish. It was that fish with the Darwin in the middle and the the little feet. Well, what did the Christians do? Well, we did what we did best. We fought back by creating a bigger, uglier, nastier fish that ate the Darwin fish, and it went back and forth. And I don't know if we knew what we were doing, but we were sure of one thing. It was us versus them, and at least... At least in the smallest sense of the word, we believed in something and we were standing up for it, albeit very poorly. It got a little more hectic. We started putting stickers on our car like, real men love Jesus, and they fought back with born-again pagan. We would put on our, on our cars stuff like, turn right and go straight if you want to get to heaven, and they would reply with, born right the first time, and it just went back and forth to a uh, bunch of groups of people that were adamant about what they believed to the detriment of the other. But then something changed, and I specifically remember the sticker that crowned it all. It was one word. It was made up of a variety of different world faith symbols, and it simply said, coexist. Coexist. After that, I started to hear that that language infiltrate the language of my friends and my professors and uh, the people that I worked with, language that, that spoke of coexisting and uh, tolerance and diversity, which can mean a, a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people, but at least in the religious sense, it meant you believe one thing and I believe another, and that's okay. Let's just get along. Those differences aren't that important. Now, it's true that we can have differences. In fact, in a room this size, everybody has differences. And it's okay to be all right with those differences. However, when we're left with simply differences, we will tear each other apart unless we have some one thing to bind our hearts together. Unless we have some one thing that goes far beyond the differences that we have. We don't have to necessarily change some of those differences. Maybe some we do, like what God we choose and serve. But some of those differences can remain the same as long as we have a commonality, something that binds our hearts together in unity. And Christianity is based on some of those objective, unchanging, sometimes irritating absolutes. And Paul right now is simply going through a list of them. It's not an exhaustive list. He doesn't throw out the Lord's communion. He doesn't even mention the cross or resurrection. That's not his point. He is simply driving into the hearts of the Christian church that you have that one thing in common. 
Don't you dare for a second get sidetracked by the other things. This is your one thing in common. And he starts to uh, uh, focus their attention on a few of those things. Noticeably, God in three persons. Very specifically, starts in that first verse, in in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. That very same spirit that gives us the unity that we have. But he moves on from there. You know, the next verse. We have one Lord, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son. And then in verse 6. And one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. Paul immediately refers to the one true God as known by Christians in Trinitarian form. The Father, the Son. And the Holy Spirit as the center of our unity. And then he doesn't just stop there. He speaks of God active in the salvation of sinners. He alludes to this by saying in verse 5, We, our unity, is based on one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now he's not just speaking about the water baptism. He's speaking about what water baptism refers to. He would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul would say, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Well, what kind of baptism? What is it that that water represents in the first place? Romans chapter 6, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized also into his death? Saying that, baptize, that baptizing speaks of your death to self crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Saying you died to yourself and your old life is over. So at this rate, he's already speaking about the work of the triune God in salvation. We're incorporated into the death of the Son of God. We saw in the the, the verses prior, it is by the baptism, the supernatural baptism of the Spirit, as predestined by the Father, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. And this formulates the Christian's belief system. It formulates how we think about things. It constructs our worldview. It's how we make sense of life. It's how we make sense of the death of a loved one. It's how we make sense of a broken economy. It's how we make sense of betrayal. It's how we make sense of life. It's through the lens of the story of God in all its redemptive form. How am I going to make sense of my life which does not make sense? Something outside of myself. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one Father who is in all and above all and through all. It's that one faith, those core doctrines about who God is and what he has done to us, for us, that makes sense of the world. It's our worldview. That's why Paul will go on later in verse 13, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, to say that all of this, that we are gathering. Why do we gather together on Sunday morning? Why do we get together in calm groups? Why do we spend life together? Why do we evangelize? Why do we read scripture and pray and sing and uh, uh, exhort one another? Until we all reach unity in what? The faith. Until we get it, man. Until this is so ingrained in us that anything Satan throws at the body of Christ will ricochet. Though it will hurt, though it will sting, though pain is very real, though we cannot escape suffering in this life. And we'll have something that, is, that has been drilled much deeper. The oneness that the body of Christ surrounds its, itself will. Jude would say in verse 3, it's that faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all by the apostles who listened to Jesus. 
And this, these core beliefs, this God that we worship, the salvation that He gives us by grace, is what the church gathers around. It is what we exist for. There are many other things that we do, but this is what drives us, the universal church. So when Paul says at the beginning in verse 4, there is one body. I want you to keep the unity of the Spirit and the peace that binds us. That stuff that already exists in you because you are one body. He's speaking about the body, the universal church. He's speaking about every single man and woman, every child. Every person throughout history who has ever been regenerated by the power of God and believed for salvation. Some would call it the invisible church because it spans all of history. It's not contained by a building and you can't really see it. But it is made visible by local churches throughout the area. So reality is one of those local churches. Well, down the street, Calvary Chapel is one of those local churches. Carpinteria, First Baptist Church of Carpinteria is one of those local churches, Ventura Missionary, and so on and so forth. PCA, these are local manifestations of the invisible church. So we don't know what that universal church, we, we don't know what that one body looks like, but we do know what the local church should look like. As we look at Jesus' teachings and Paul's teachings and the Luke's letter, uh, or uh, excuse me, history of the Acts of the Apostles, we see certain things that must be evident in a church, a local church, for it to be a true church. One of them, if we look at Jesus, we examine Paul's instruction to Timothy, who would say, give public reading, uh, excuse me, give public attention to the reading of Scripture. We would say that one of those things is doctrinal preaching. The preaching of the Word of God. Another word to to describe that is expositional preaching. The Word of God taught as it was meant to be. Want more on that? You can look at a a sermon a few weeks ago called Theological Part 2. What is expositional preaching? But doctrinal preaching, that should be evident in a local church. The sacraments, of which there are two, not seven, not nine, as instituted by Jesus Christ himself, baptism, which speaks of conversion, we should see conversion, and the Lord's Supper, gathering together after we have been baptized to look back at the cross. These things should be evident in the gathering of the local church. If we were to examine Matthew chapter 18, Jesus speaking, and some of the uh, pastoral epistles that Paul laid out to Timothy and Titus, we would say that the local church should have a biblical leadership that loves the church enough to practice church discipline. That we would say, we don't want anyone to fall hopelessly into their sin. We want to see everybody have Christ formed in them and be able to say at the end of their lives, I made it. So we lovingly correct, keep one another accountable. That should be evident. Those things are very, very clear throughout the New Testament. But, If we were to read the rest of the New Testament, we'd also have to say that a local church should be marked by generosity. What is a church that doesn't know generosity? In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul would say, you should be generous because Christ was generous towards you. Jesus in his richness and in his wealth became impoverished so that you in your poverty might become rich in righteousness. 
So we would say the church should be marked by a generosity, lavish generosity with their money, with their time, and with their resources. Look at the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4. That's what they looked like. We would also have to say that there should be prayer. A church should be marked, characterized by prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer, Jesus Christ declared. You watch and read and observe the book of Acts. You see people stopping everything to pray. And God responding, swinging his sovereign hand in response to their prayers. Lastly, we should probably say that mission should be a characteristic of the local church. And it's not so much that we should be thinking what mission should we get on board with, but that Christ has a mission and he created the church for his mission, not vice versa. So we would say, what is Jesus Christ doing in the world? We should do that as well. So these are some of the things that should characterize our gathering together. Yes, on Sunday and throughout the week, doctrinal preaching, not just from here, but in calm groups, in one-on-one situations, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, biblical leadership that loves the church enough to practice church discipline, generosity spanning our entire lifestyle, gathering together on the Lord's Day, prayer and mission, all of which can be categorized under worship. All of these things are how we worship the Lord when we gather together. And our worship shows the outside world looking in that we are unified by a one hope in a saving God. Meaning if we were to live according to these things, the outside world should look in on us and say, those people are unified by something I don't have. Now at this point, I don't, I want to be careful. Ephesus, or the the letter to the Ephesians, isn't written to combat a problem, as Paul often does, right? He wrote the letter to the Galatians to combat legalism. He wrote the letter to the Corinthians because there was a whole list of things happening in that church. He wrote Philippians because people were suffering. Ephesians is just a loud doxological exclamation point. He's just saying, this is who God is. This is his church. So it's not written to combat a particular problem, but I would be remiss not to mention that as Paul is laying out the glory of God in the church, he's doing it in a steeped context of pluralism. Pluralism, simply put, means not one authority, but more. Or you could say more than one authority. Religious pluralism would simply mean more than one God. I don't mind the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't don't have a problem with Jesus. I worship him. But I also like, you know, this guy over here. Not one authority, but many. Hundreds of years before Paul would write this letter to the Ephesian church... Greek culture and Roman culture colliding together would erupt in a culture of pluralism that has been unparalleled until our day. One of those false gods in which the Greeks would love to worship went by the name of Serapis. It was a god constructed by Ptolemy for the launch of his empire. You see, Ptolemy came along and he wanted to do the impossible. He wanted to take the Egyptian nation and the Greek nation and combine them together, unified under his domain. 
impossible feat for anybody. Not only did they have two separate religions, two separate nations, two separate histories, two separate ways of uh, worldviews by which they viewed life, but they, were, uh, they had this animosity towards one another, and he desired to bring them together under his rule. What he needed was a means of combining their religious traditions. And so Ptolemy, as the history books tell us, commissioned a Greek master sculptor to construct a god by the name of Serapis. Serapis would appeal to every single people group in the city. For example, the Greeks would be able to look at the statue and it would have so many characteristics that they were used to worshiping that they'd be able to look at it and say, well, that, that, that kind of looks like Zeus. It would kind of resemble uh, Asclepius, the, the god of healing, and Cerberus, the dog of the underworld. But then the Egyptians would be able to look at the same exact thing and see their rich Egyptian religious history. And so both people groups looked at the same thing and say, yeah, this is good for us. A God who simultaneously satisfied the Greeks' desire for a king to rule and the Egyptians' desire for a God to worship. Serapis was nothing more than a people pleaser. And Ptolemy creates a pluralistic God to bring unity to his people. And this, by the time of Paul's writing, is thriving in his neighborhood. And I would say it is still thriving today. Now, the modern thinker would hear the words idol or pluralist and think, well, that is so archaic. Nobody in here worships idols. That is so 2,000 years ago. I don't have statues anywhere. Nobody worships idols. I worship God and God alone, as proven by my living room, which has no statues anywhere. (laughs) Idolatry has never really been about the statue. It's been about what those statues represent. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, would say, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And so it might take a statued form in the first century. It might be the God Aphrodite uh, uh, filled out in, 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 in physical form, but it represented sexuality. It might be the God Artemis in physical form, chiseled out of stone, but that stone represented the God of commerce because you were thirsting for money. And so it is in our day. Idolatry in money, in power, in the want of sex, and in security, in comfort, the list is endless. False gods can, it turns out, to be made and carved out of anything. And it's usually not the bad things in your life that are idols. It's the good things. It's the good things that you have created to be ultimate things. And therein lies the danger. We love our good things, and good things are good, until we have elevated them above the one true God. And when you are enslaved to idolatry, adding religion to the mix will not cure your want of idols. It will simply feed your pre-existing appetites, You will turn religion, you will turn church, you will turn your spiritual disciplines into a means to feed off your idolatrous appetites. And if it is true, as the Bible seems to declare it, that an idol is more than just a statue, but an attitude of the heart, 
we are doomed. As Calvin would so pithily state, the heart is an idol factory. We make idols out of anything. And when one God won't work, we just create more. Perhaps our God is relationships because we are feeling the weight of loneliness. And we can't achieve the relationships that we so desperately desire. And so we elevate a new God. Money. If I can make enough money, I will find the right person who will love me so that I can no longer be lonely. Two gods. In order to achieve money, we look to our career, which is then elevated into a third god. In order to get the perfect career, we pour ourselves into education, and the list goes on and on, like credit card debt snowballing while at the same time destroying your soul. I want to read to you God's heart about idols from the book of Isaiah in chapter 44. Before I read it, I want you to hear his sarcasm at the utter inability of our idols to cure anything. I want you to hear how the God, the one true God, mocks the idols we set up for ourselves. And I want you to think of all of the things that you have set up on a pedestal in your own life and see how God views those things because of his tenacious love for you and his want of his own glory. Listen to what he says. He says of the idolater, he cuts down cedars for his use. He takes a cypress or an oak, he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel and the rain makes it grow. It serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and he warms himself. Also, he kindles a fire and he bakes bread on it. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat on the other half. He eats the roasts and he is satisfied. Then he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, Save me for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their minds so they cannot understand. No one reflects. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire and I also baked bread on on its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. And I'll make something detestable with the rest of it and I'll bow down to a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? So is the destructive nature of the idols we set up today. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. Until we are brought to a place of such utter desperation to see, I am not being helped, I am not being transformed, I am not being satisfied, my sin is not being torn from me, I am not being made new, and you'll never make enough money to satisfy this insatiable hunger that God has placed in your heart for him. You'll never make enough friends to satisfy your loneliness. You'll never have enough clout in the business or corporate world to justify your reason for existing. And that is the bare nature of false gods. They promise you everything and they never deliver. 
They demand from you everything and they leave you empty handed. And in the midst of a melting pot of disappointing gods who can't transform and cannot save and cannot rescue, Paul clarifies where the church's peace and unity comes from. One body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The question, what are we unified around? The answer, a person and his redemptive work in us alone. And Paul is driving this text home by his use of ones. Seven times, one God, one Christ, one Father, one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. You know what he's saying? He's saying there is and there exists outside of your subjective mind, outside of your experience, an objective truth that will never change. Whether you existed or not, this truth would always be true. These two verses would always occur. They would always exist. They would always be reality. There exists outside of us and our control an objective truth that is external to us. And let me tell you something. You're going to need an objective hope. You're going to need something outside of yourself to look for when the stuff hits the fan. Have you noticed that Paul, why does Paul always refer to his imprisonment? That's such a weird way to start a conversation. I am Paul, imprisoned. I am Paul, a prisoner. Nice to meet you. You know why he's always, he did that a few verses ago. We saw uh, last week saying, I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. I, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul always brings up his imprisonment because he wants his hearers who are suffering, his hearers who are being imprisoned, his hearers who are being crucified for their faith, who are being flayed alive for their faith, who are being mocked and stoned, his listeners today who are losing their job promotions, losing their credibility, losing their clout. He wants them to know that Jesus is worth it. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted, his imprisonment, in the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. He doesn't even say, I'm a prisoner of Rome, though that's what he is. No, I am here by direct edict of my king, Jesus Christ. He wants the listener to know that everything that they will go through is worth Jesus Christ. And when you get sick, and when leukemia hits your family, and when cancer hits your family, you had better have more to lean on than some silly cultural trend. When you lose your job, when a promotion is hanging in the balance based on whether you can compromise on your integrity, your integrity be better be based on more than a simple Christianese to-do list. When your family is falling apart, you best have more than a self-help book from the New York Times. When you are dreadfully addicted to your sin, you better have more in your arsenal than I am going to try harder. 
every religious worldview in our day assumes that there will be peace on earth if we can just try harder. Christianity assumes that we are helpless rebels who must be brought together under the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ who will bring everything under himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the world really needs. Yes, we are to do good works. And yes, we are to do good deeds. And yes, we are to do social justice. And yes, we are to vote. And yes, we are to partake in different community things. And yes, we are to do all the good that Scripture tells us to do. But ultimately, what the world needs is not a program, but a relationship to be reconciled to God in Christ. Every amount of brokenness that we experience and perpetuate and push onto each other comes from the brokenness and rebellion that we experience with God. He makes us right with Him, and we are then made right with one another. That means every corrupt government. That means every unjust corporation, every broken system, every broken family, every divorced couple, every unfaithful spouse, everything that is wrong with this world will be put back together when those relationships are reconciled to Jesus Christ. Why do we preach the gospel? To one another and to ourselves and to our neighbors. Because that is what the world needs. Lasting unity can only be found in Christ alone. And we can have all the differences in the world as long as we get that one right. Stop looking for peace and satisfaction and enjoyment and fulfillment and purpose in that cheap buffet of spiritual finger foods that our culture likes to peddle your way. What you and I need is a full-blown meal. And that meal is Christ's body broken for you. It's his blood spilt for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, yes. And for the transformation of your life. That's why we get baptized once so that we can look back onto our, baptize, onto our baptism, not to say, oh, I'm going I'm to rebaptize myself and try harder. No, we look back upon the, the day we were baptized and we say, that reminds me of the finished work of Christ at work in me right now. During worship, you're invited to take communion of the cup and of the bread. What does communion entail? Don't take communion so that you can rededicate your life to Christ. In a sense, drinking of the cup and of the bread to say, oh, this is like a magic formula to help me do better this time. You take of that to remind yourself and proclaim what was done on your behalf. And therein lies your power. When we gather together, we gather around an external truth that we had nothing to do with. Some of you today need an external truth. Some of you, your families are falling apart. Some of you are on the verge of losing your job. Some of you are going through a nightmare that I could barely imagine. And you're looking for advice. You're looking for seven points. You're looking for a practical five-point message to tell you what you should do. All I've got for you this morning is Jesus Christ, who has done for you what needed to be done in the first place. I want to invite you this morning to recall that for any means 
in any way if you have succumbed to idolatry as we often do. In your worry, in your anxiety, you have looked to other things as your means for salvation. I would invite you to repent of that and to turn back to Christ as your strength and as the author and perfecter of your faith. When you take of the bread and of the juice, you are proclaiming his death until the day he comes. And it's not going to get rid of your suffering. It's not going to make your life a bed of roses. But it will give you the strength and the unity and the peace that you need to persevere in this life. So that we can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have ran the race. And I await a crown of righteousness which is waiting for me on that day. We persevere because Christ has persevered for us. And in this, we unify together and rejoice because Christ has fought for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that as we sing songs about you, that you would sing louder songs over us, songs of deliverance, Zephaniah would say you would quiet our hearts with joy. Thank you for my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ who love you. And by grace have followed after you. I lift them up to you this day and ask for more of your grace to be lavished upon us. That you, God, sympathize with our weaknesses. You know where we're at in this life and you know our struggles, you know our sin, you know our stumbling. And I pray that as we sing songs together, that, Lord, you would continue to rescue us for your good name. Not for the sake of our name, Lord, but for the sake of your holy name will you save us. I pray that every idol in this house would crumble in the presence of the almighty one true God. That we would see you for all of your worth and all of your beauty and all of your glory and all of your splendor. And in doing so, we would learn more so how to enjoy Jesus Christ over everything else in this life. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.